Hi, I'm Emmy Award-winning TV journalist Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, our special coverage of the Chauvin murder trial continues. Activist, attorney, and former president of the Minneapolis NAACP, Nakima Levy-Armstrong, shares her insights on who is on the jury and why they may acquit Derek Chauvin. Plus, Madison Gray, senior editor for BET.com, is with us with his thoughts on whether the number of officers testifying against Chauvin signals an end to the blue wall of silence. In the second week of the Chauvin trial, the prosecution continues to make their case. They've been focused on police policy, training, and use of force. So far, at least eight police officers have now testified against former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Are we seeing the end of the blue wall of silence? Seeing it crumble for one of the first times ever? An important question we're going to talk about today. Finally, what exactly did George Floyd say on that video? Was it, I ate too many drugs or I ain't do no drugs? We'll get to that more later on this episode. All right, so joining us now to break this all down is Madison Gray, senior editor at BET.com. Let's dive right into this key point that everybody is talking about right now, which is the defense bringing up this question of what George Floyd said in this video of his final moments. The defense is saying that he said, I ate too many drugs. And the prosecution is making the claim that he said, I ain't do no drugs. Did you listen to it? And what did you hear? I did listen to it. I rewound it and I tried to listen to it again. It is very hard to tell, I have to say. Um, that audio seems to come from uh, officer, former officer J. Alexander King's uh, body camera. And after you hear it, it's still muffled. It was still loud. There's a lot going on in the scene. Uh, the defense seems to hold steadfast to him saying that him, him saying, I did too many drugs, I ate too many drugs. But when the prosecution came back on a redirect, they said that, you know, he seemed to say, I do no drugs. So what is it? I want to lean to him saying that he said, I do no drugs. Why? Because of the things he said prior to that when he was being arrested. He was saying things like, I'm not a bad guy. You know, I don't want, I don't want any trouble, things like that. And he seemed more lucid than at any time in, in, in the entire taping in the store or at the time of the arrest. So you kind of want to believe that. But this also speaks to things that forensic scientists talked about uh, later on in testimony today, when they said they found pills that contain amounts of fentanyl, methamphetamine, oxycodone, and other opioids. So it's really going to be something that's going to be brought out, and it will probably brought out, be brought out again during the defense case next week. Do you see somebody saying, I ate too many drugs? It's no. hard to it's hard <laughs> to say that. If you're being arrested, you know, it's hard to, you know, imagine someone saying to the police, I ate too many drugs. You know, I mean, that's, sort of an admission of possession of-, of, of But it doesn't of, even sound like I took too many drugs or I'm too high, like, and maybe it's just me. It, does it sound strange to say I ate too many drugs? I have said I ate too many cupcakes, but is that how people speak? This is the defense is the, the defense's beginning of throwing stuff at the wall, seeing what they can make stick on George Floyd so that they can take attention off of Derek Chauvin, right? And, and on some level, the fact that we're having this conversation makes Derek Chauvin a lot less of uh, at the center of discussion than it does George Floyd. That's what the prosecution wants to do here. At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter whether or not George Floyd said, 
I ate too many drugs. I ate too much drugs. I ain't do no drugs. I ain't never seen no drugs. I don't know what drugs are. That doesn't matter. Any prosecutor will tell you, you take your victim as they are, right? So it doesn't matter whether or not the person who, who just got robbed would, was, a, uh, was an undocumented immigrant. That person just got just got robbed. Your job is to prosecute the person who robbed them. It doesn't matter whether that person, whether, whether the person who was murdered was addicted to opioids and had just taken opioids. Your job is to prosecute the person who murdered them. Right. And so the defense is, is really trying this tactic of taking the focus off of off of their client, which I'm, I, I would imagine that any good defense attorney would do. But it becomes problematic when when that discussion becomes central to what's happening in, in the case, because if we're leading our discussion with it, then what are the jurors thinking? Well, Keith, that's the, that's the tug of war here. Remember, the defense's job, they have one primary job, to create doubt in the minds of the jury. And they even tried, the defense at some point today, tried to make an issue of whether or not his knee was actually even on the neck, which I kind of laughed at. Do you observe Mr. Chauvin's right knee to be compressing Mr. Floyd's left arm so clarification, I think from what I see here, it was Mr. Chauvin's uh, shin that was compressed in the arm and the knee was actually on the back. That's what you believe you see? Yes, sir. Okay. Which to me sounded a little bit contradictory. The defense coming in was the knee on the neck didn't have anything to do with, with George Floyd's death. George, George Floyd's death was all about him having a heart condition. It was all about the, the, the amount of drugs that he was on and et cetera, et cetera. If you can confuse the jury, right? If you Correct. can say, well, we're not sure that George Floyd died from the knee on the neck. He may have died from a drug overdose. And maybe the knee wasn't actually on his neck. Maybe it was on his shoulders. And maybe the officers were distracted from their duty to provide care by this angry crowd that was forming on the sidewalk. All you have to do is convince one juror yeah, that that's one. the case. And it just has to be one person who maybe is already predisposed to not wanting to convict a police officer. And again, Correct. you don't have to be convinced that the alternative theory is the truth. It's that could it reasonably be have what had happened, right? Is it, this idea that could it be true that he's in fact confessed to have taken too many drugs and his health was so-and-so, and they were distracted, and maybe the knee wasn't even made. The idea that if, if you can make enough of the prosecution's arguments, if you can push them into gray areas, suddenly it becomes a lot more harder, a lot harder to convict. Uh, but and again, I think that that's what's difficult. We watch, and the burden of kind of consistent narrative really only falls to the prosecution, right? The defense does not actually have to put up a full and fully developed and fully proven alternative theory of what has happened. All they have to do is convince one person that that it is plausible that the prosecution's theory might not have happened. So let's talk a little bit more about what we've seen from the prosecution's case and from their witnesses. So, so far we've seen at least eight police officers testify on behalf of the prosecution. Um, and this stands out because it flies in the face of this, this so-called blue wall of silence that we're so used to seeing. And I wanna talk about that more in a second, but I wanna read the Minneapolis Police Department's public statement. So this was their press release the day he died, uh, May 25th, 2020. On Monday evening, shortly after 8 p.m., officers from the Minneapolis Police Department responded to the 3700 block of Chicago Avenue South on a report of a forgery in progress. 
Officers were advised that the suspect was sitting on top of a blue car and appeared to be under the influence. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s, in his car. He was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. At no time were weapons of any type used by anyone involved in the incident. If there was not video, this would be the official record. There were no weapons used at any time. The man appeared to be in medical distress. He died at the hospital. It's all completely passive. If there were not video, this would be the official record. And this is what a lot of people have come to expect, which is police circling the wagons and agreeing on an account that absolves them of all responsibility. We saw it in the Breonna Taylor case, where on the incident report, it said that the victim suffered no injuries, when in fact, we know that she was shot to death. Are you surprised? by how many police officers and members of the law enforcement community are coming out on behalf of the prosecution? I think it's noteworthy how many members are coming out. I, I think we can't understate the significance of eight different sworn officers taking to the stand and talking about it. I'm not surprised. This case was particularly egregious and came at a particularly sensitive time for police. Police across the country have felt up against the wall um, as the movement for Black Lives has gained steam and momentum, uh, as videotapes time and time again have showed police uh, doing things that the public does not support um, or is enraged by. And, and, and so in a case like this, where the video appeared so egregious and where people were so upset, it in a lot of ways, I think policing leaders across the country found it so important to be out front on this because this was an easy one. This wasn't a gray area. This wasn't a jump ball. Because he was in the prone position, he was handcuffed. Um, he was not attempting to resist. He was not attempting to uh, assault the officers, kick, punch, or anything of that nature. You have an opinion to a degree of reasonable professional certainty whether the force used as shown in Exhibit 254, uh, whether that force uh, being applied then for the restraint period, which you've defined as nine minutes and 29 seconds, would constitute deadly force? Yes. And what is that opinion? That it would. This was one where they felt they could say that that cop should not have done that thing and not necessarily take blowback internally. And also they would hope gain credibility publicly. That when I look at these officers who take him to the stand, one of the key things they're attempting to do is make sure that this trial remains about Derek Chauvin, not about policing. You know, I recently rewatched the Rodney King tape and, and, and went back and looked at, at that trial. And, and I think that the profession's attempting, at least in some ways, to learn some of the lessons from that. In, in that, when the public is so clearly outraged about something that, when you watch it, is obviously outrageous, there, there might be something to gain from rapidly separating yourself and not double down and triple down and defending the officers. One of the issues there is that at least half of the, the officers that we've seen testify have not been Minneapolis officers. So there's some, so, so I don't want us to, to go too far in the direction of believing that this represents a paradigm shift in policing or that it even represents a paradigm shift in that specific department. And what you're actually seeing is Officers who have, or officers and or former officers who have nothing to lose by way of uh, being ostracized by their colleagues or how they may get treated on the street or, or, or anything of that nature because 
they get to go back to Los Angeles or they get to go back to New York or they get to go back to whatever department it is that they, that, that they work in or that they lead without having to deal with the on the ground consequences. And in fact, his defense is being paid for by who? By Minneapolis Police Union. Do you think that this is going to change the culture at all moving forward? Are we going to start seeing more of this where when cases are egregious enough or where they're clear cut enough, where officers will not be so hesitant to step forward and be critical of fellow officers? If it happens, it'll 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 happen slowly. I'm 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 being optimistic here, but I'm thinking that it, it could happen department by department, but it'll take years before we have we eliminate the blue wall of silence. One thing that is interesting to note is we've heard reports that nobody has shown up um, to court on behalf of Chauvin. So so whereas you know there's a member of George Floyd's family who has been there, there has not been anyone there um, for the former officer Chauvin. And also his wife divorced him or she filed for divorce like days after the arrest. So it's interesting to note how little support he is getting from any side of his life. At the end of the day, there, there is something to be to be said for the fact that no one is showing up for for uh, for Derek Chauvin, that they actually removed the chair that was <laughs> there's a specific chair or section of chairs. I think it's one uh, that's supposed to be for people to come in and support him. And they removed it because no one no one showed up. Um, that's a way to handle social distancing. right? <laughs> that, that's what that's one way. That's get one get way. that chair out of there. Um, Madison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. And joining us now is Nakima Levy Armstrong. She is a civil rights attorney, former Minneapolis NAACP president, and an activist with Brightbeam. Nakima, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Nakima, can you tell us about how it was that you first came across the video? And when you first saw it, what did you what did you think? And when did you reach out to the police chief? So um, that night on May 25th of 2020, I was tagged in a Facebook post by a woman who lost her husband to police violence. And um, just in terms of my background, I'm a civil rights attorney and an activist. And so, you know, when things happen in the community surrounding policing, people usually contact me. And so she tagged me. She said that she had heard from people that Minneapolis police had choked someone or did something to his neck that caused his death. So I started looking around online. I didn't see anything. So I reached out to the chief and I said, did Minneapolis police kill someone tonight? And the chief said, no, not to his knowledge. Someone was being taken into custody and they died as a result of a medical emergency. And I said, have you seen any video evidence of what happened? He said, no, not yet. I sent it over to the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. And I said, well, try to get your hands on some video because the community is saying something different. So then I went to social media, I talked about what happened, what the chief said, what the community said. And I said, we need to see some video. And that same woman who had tagged me the first time tagged me again in Darnella Frazier's bystander video. And as soon as I saw the video, of course, I started to weep, seeing what happened to George Floyd. And then I called the police chief back immediately and let him know that his officers had actually choked and killed George Floyd. How did you tell him that? I said, um, I've known the chief for, I don't know, five or six years. And so I was just very straightforward. I just said, chief, you need to see that video. They choked and killed that man. Community member had contacted me and said, uh, chief, uh, almost verbatim, but said, chief, have you seen the video of your officer choking and killing that, 
that man at 38th in Chicago. After you had actually watched the video and described it to him, what was his response? I think he was shocked. He was quiet for a few seconds because it was completely different from what had been explained to him. And I could tell that he was really stunned by what happened. And he said that he was going to take a look. How is this being perceived? How's this trial playing out locally um, among folks who live and work and raise their families in Minneapolis, both in terms of, of folks who want to see accountability, but then also in terms of people who might be more sympathetic to the officer? Because uh, that's something we've talked about as well. Um, not being able to gauge how much support he might have, how much support he might not have, what we're not seeing on the, on the telecast. Mm -hmm. I think that many people in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities are outraged at Derek Chauvin's behavior, especially within the Black community. We have people who cannot and will not watch the trial because it is too traumatizing and too stressful and it induces anxiety. You also have, of course, folks in the community who are no matter what pro-law enforcement. Now, we don't see a lot of those people unless we have a demonstration and there's some folks there from back to blue and they're armed, but most of the time we far outnumber them and we're also armed in a lot of our protests. The other thing that's happened here is after George Floyd was killed, there was a lot of turmoil amongst our city council, our mayor and our chief, and all of the negative attention actually resulted in hundreds of officers taking medical leave, resigning or retiring from the force. And so that's been something that Chief Arredondo has had to deal with. And I believe that in part he's dealing with that because of the fact that he is the first black chief in the history of the city of Minneapolis. Nikima, you're from the same community that the jury is from. You're also an attorney. Based on what you've seen so far from the case and based on what you know about the community that this jury pool comes from, how do you think this is being received by them? Is it as clear cut as the video would make it seem? Or do you think there are people on the jury who are gonna be sympathetic to the officers, the potential threat of the crowd, all the arguments that the defense is making? I don't think that it's as clear cut as people think. And back when the trial started, we were letting people know brace yourselves for the possibility of an acquittal. Because we all know how difficult it is to convict killer cops, even with video evidence, as we've seen in the Twin Cities and around the nation. And when you look at the composition of the jury, some of the jurors actually have ties to law enforcement, at least three of them do. And out of the four Black jurors, only two are native-born African-American. And one of the two is a Black woman who is related to or has close ties to a member of law enforcement. So even though the jury is diverse, if we look at some of the nuances, we realize that there are only two um, native-born Black people who maybe could relate to George Floyd. And that's a big question mark in the grand scheme of things, especially with regard to how the defense is essentially trying to put George Floyd and the bystanders on trial in this situation. What, what do you, you know, again, kind of in your attorney hat, as you look at this trial, um, from a technical perspective, you know, do you think there are mista any mistakes that have been made by either side that might come back later, either an appeal or, or might in some way influence the, an outcome? Mm -hmm. I think overall, the prosecution is doing a good job. Part of what I've witnessed though that's concerning is the door that is sometimes open to the defense to turn witnesses, to become defense witnesses. And we saw that, I believe yesterday with um, Officer McKenzie 
who was who is um, a medical instructor and she's uh, the advisor who is a police officer. And as she was beginning to testify, the door was open to the defense, turning her into one of his witnesses. Um, what about people in the area? Could that affect an, an EMT's decision to load and go? Yes. How so? If you had a very hostile or um, volatile crowd, um, I know it, it sounds unreasonable, but um, bystanders do occasionally attack EMS crews. Um, so sometimes just getting out of the situation is kind of the best way to defuse it. Okay. And um, have you ever had to perform uh, emergency services in a, just a, not even a hostile crowd, just a loud, excited crowd? Yes. Is that, in your experience, more or less difficult? It's incredibly difficult. Why? Um, because if you're you know, trying to be heads down on a patient that you need to you know, render aid to, um, it's very difficult to focus on that, that patient while there's other things around you. If you don't feel safe around you, it's very difficult to focus on the, the one thing in front of you. It can be distracting. Absolutely. And so it, does it make it more difficult to uh, assess a patient? It does. Does it make it more likely that you may miss signs that a patient is experiencing something? Yes. And as a matter of fact, he has now been given permission to call her um, in, in his case, which will probably start next week. I also believe that the, the, that the prosecution should have objected when that information came in about what George Floyd may have said about drugs. We don't know what exactly he said, but the, the prosecution should have hopped on that issue much more quickly rather than leave a question mark in the jurors' minds about what George Floyd may or may not have said. So then what do you think happens in the event of an acquittal? What happens in Minneapolis and what happens around the country? I think in Minneapolis, all hell will break loose, just as we saw last summer when people put their foot down to say, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Um, like Dr. King said, a riot is the language of the unheard. And of course, none of us want that to happen. We lead peaceful protests all the time, but we know that there are people who are fed up enough to do what they decide to do. All right, Nakima Levy-Armstrong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.